that collective need to define where we are right now is something I hear from so many people when they hear the term for the first time. They're like, I feel that. I didn't know there was enough people who felt it that there was a term. Like Judith Butler talks about grief as having a we-creating capacity. And I find that when terms that people feel resonate, that validates where they are and kind of elevates their individual experience to the collective, it gives that we-creating. Like immediately you're like, oh, I am now not alone. I'm in a we relationship. Other people feel this. This is reasonable. This is normal. And we should be talking about this more. Hey friends, Lisa Kiefoffer here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. In case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. It's a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I'm no exception with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. But I created this show because individually and collectively, we are so grief illiterate and that is causing all of us harm. So I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. Y'all, I have been desperately wanting to include climate and ecological grief in the show for such a long time. That's why I'm thrilled to bring you today's guest, Ashley Consolo. Ashley is the founding dean at the School of Arctic and Subarctic Studies at Labrador Institute of Memorial University. She is a researcher, educator, and environmental advocate. Today, Ashley offers so much wisdom born of her lifelong professional and personal passions for the environment and because of the deep and extensive qualitative and quantitative research she's been doing in Northern Labrador in Canada with indigenous Inuit people. She shares the wisdom she's learned from elders, explores the deep grief scientists are facing as the populations they love and study are disappearing before their very eyes. And she helps us connect to the need for a kind of gritty hope necessary to stay active in saving this ecosystem that we're a part of, that we're in relationship with. She invites us to see more fully that we are part of a collective that is a much bigger we than we often imagine. Today's episode is brought to you by Vita Health. It's no secret the past couple of years have really put a strain on all our mental health and sense of well-being. Employers are seeing the strain on their employees and trying to find innovative ways to help them get the care they need. Vita Health, now in network with Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois, lets people get the mental health care they need when, where, and how they need it. Visit Vita.com to learn more. That's V-I-D-A dot com. Vita, healthcare designed for the body and mind. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I know you know that I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and I'm sure my listeners know that I have been desperate to bring the conversation of climate and ecological grief to the platform. So I'm so thrilled to have you joining us in conversation today. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I love what you do. And this I think it's going to be a really generative discussion. I love that. Well, those are my favorite kinds of discussions. So here we go. So before we I ask you my opening question, the, this deep sustained meditation I have on how we come to learn and understand and experience grief. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your profession, what you do for a living, just as the context as we explore the conversation today? Sure. Yeah, my training is as a health geographer. So I look at the intersections between people, place, the environment, and how that affects all aspects of their health and well-being. I'm particularly interested in climate and environmental change and what that means for our mental and emotional health. So how connecting with the environment and with the land really affects all aspects of who we are, whether we realize it or not. And it affects our emotions, whether we realize it or not. And so that's kind of my my professional training. And I've done most of my research up in northern Canada, working with Inuit people who are experiencing a whole variety of really intensive and longstanding changes from climate. 
And then academically, I'm also an administrative leader and I'm a dean of a school of Arctic and subarctic studies of a newly emerging campus in Labrador of Memorial University. So while growing research, I'm also looking to grow educational opportunities to create the future climate leaders, actually, and and other educational leaders in the region. Okay, I want to come study with you, too. I've got so many curiosities. That's phenomenal. My late husband was a geographer, and so I'm always interested in those intersections of sort of culture and humanity and mental health and geography. So I'm sure we'll nerd out here in a little bit. (laughs) But I'd love to begin our conversation where I always do, which is being curious, inviting you really to be curious with us about your earliest memories of grief. And it goes maybe without saying that that doesn't necessarily have to be a death loss, you know, of a human. And more particularly, how is your environment, whether it's the adults in your life, your community, your culture, how do you, how do you think others expressed grief over that loss? And what did that teach you kind of about what grief should or shouldn't look like or feel like? Can you take us back to a time maybe in your childhood or young adulthood? Yeah, so my first very vivid experience with grief was when I was five. And it was actually for a non-human entity. It was for a family of beavers. And I, you know, as a child, I didn't know that socially people didn't overtly grieve for animals or ecosystem. I just didn't know that. I always loved animals. I loved being outside. I didn't really see a difference in a boundary between like my body and other animals. And so there was a a beaver dam just down the road from where I lived. And I used to go all the time and I would watch them and I would watch the baby beavers and I just love them. I love them so much. And then one day I went back and I hadn't been there in a couple of weeks. And I, I think I must have been away or with my grandma or something. And I came back and they had bulldozed the pond in and the beaver dam was gone and the beavers were dead. And one of the beaver bodies was still there. And I, I was like beside myself. I mean, I just didn't understand. I didn't understand death. I didn't understand loss. I didn't understand why humans would do that. Like, why would you kill a beaver family? And so I was so sad and so bereft and so confused. And then I remember like trying to explain this to my parents who were you know, very loving and very supportive. But it, for an adult, when a five-year-old is sad about beavers, you don't take that sort of seriously all the time, right? So it's like, well, you'll be fine. You'll get over it. And I, it took me so long. And what it actually taught me was that people didn't seem to care about non-human bodies. And that really surprised me. But that also, if you did care about non-human bodies, you should probably hide it. And so that I think, you know, when I reflect back, especially with all the work that I'm doing now and with my own kind of grief work and learning about grief, like really reflecting back on how that taught me to smother something that's actually so important for us. You know, like it it taught me to not express connections that I had or to not reflect emotions related to the environment that I had rather than, you know, celebrating those. And and I think it's taken years and doing this actual academic research to kind of unlearn those early patterns. And then the there was no ritual around the loss. Like it was just a loss and then I was alone and I was confused and I didn't know when I was little. And then the next year my Nana died, who was my mom's mom. And you know, obviously that was a devastating moment and particularly for my mom. And I remember like her grief and I remember the family gathering and the rituals and everything that was happening. And then really learning the difference between what bodies matter and what don't and who and what matters and what we do to ritualize certain things and not ritualize. And so then I realized that that form of grief is acceptable. (laughs) So, you know, and it's not that in those moments, I think I had those concepts, but that certainly shaped me. And those being kind of a year apart, and obviously the loss of a Nana is a very pivotal piece in your life. You know, it's a very pivotal role. And so seeing those kind of closely together, seeing how society responded, how people responded, and then what was socially acceptable forms of grief was very interesting. And I, I come from a large Italian family on the one side, but my mom's family is is British. And so even the way the two sides of the family grieve. And so then like, as I've gone through life, you know, we've lost people on both sides. And even the way that you grieve as an Italian and part Sicilian (laughs) versus how you grieve as a British person and what's acceptable at those types of funerals and what's expected of you, you know, and so all along these kind of early experiences with grief, it was learning, I think, in many ways of what parts of my grief I could let out at what times and in what places. 
but there was never a moment to let out the environmental grief. And so it wasn't until I started doing this work that I realized that like I wasn't alone, (laughs) that there's many people and that it is a really important type of grief and a really reasonable type of grief. But I hadn't. So it's like, you know, much, much later in life, I'm trying to unlearn all of those other pieces that my early experiences with grief taught me. And still the types of grief that I experience as an adult are still teaching me, you know, we're, we're, we all grow in this grief, as you well know, in the wonderful work that you do. And so I, I'm learning more and more about grief and unlearning more and more about grief as I go on. Ashley, I couldn't have imagined a more generative and beautiful answer than that. There's My head is sort of, if you all could see me on video, my I feel like sparks are flying from my brain. I think a couple of things I'd love to draw out or invite our listeners to really contemplate. One is the subtle ways in which we begin to take on grief beliefs, not because of necessarily anybody's overt instruction that you should or should not grieve, but it's the responses, body language, verbal cues, the amount of time and attention that we give one another. Of course, when we're young, mostly it's maybe parents or grandparents, but it can even be peers and folks in the community. So again, as I always like to remind people, this question isn't an invitation to rail against our parents. They were doing the best that they could. It's just a reminder that when we show up or don't show up and how we present our energy or our words or not has an influence on how somebody either owns and acknowledges, affirms their own response to loss or feels some way about it, like maybe shameful or that it needs hiding. So I appreciate you said that and that it's all of our work, which is, of course, why I asked this question to my guests, to begin to make visible all those grief beliefs that we have. And then only when we do that, which sounds like what you're doing through your work and in your personal life, can we begin to sort of, I don't know, I sometimes joke around, like sort through the junk drawer of our beliefs and decide which ones are serving us and which ones no longer do. So that's one piece that I really wanted to pull out and appreciate. I think the other is this distinction, grief being the internal and mourning being sort of the external, grief gone public, sometimes folks say, but that even within your family, you had sort of cultural differences that showed you acceptable forms of mourning. And in addition to who or what you're allowed to mourn. Yeah. And sorting through the junk drawer is such a wonderful way to explain. And I feel I have to do that constantly. And the more I learn and the more experience. And then, like I said, when I was five and six, I didn't understand what was happening. You just kind of respond to the environment around you and the signals that people give you. And so consciously and unconsciously, you take it on. And then years later, I now, like I look at the wisdom that my five-year-old body had to know to grieve for another body. And I But then nobody recognized that that children's wisdom and that connection, the fact that you don't see boundaries is actually a wonderful form of embodied intelligence that we lose as adults or or many of us. I certainly lost it as an adult. And so now realizing that, like, how do I tap back into like five-year-old Ashley who had an embodied wisdom that I don't carry anymore because adulthood takes it out of you in many ways. And so, yeah, it's that whole process of sorting through and recognizing strengths from childhood that maybe I don't carry anymore in adulthood. I love that. And I love that language of embodied loss. I'm talking about that often. Actually, that's the subject for next week's class in loss and grief that I teach at University of Texas. But I loved you bringing that imagery of little Ashley having this very in-touch and normative response to this loss. Because as you said, as children, I think we understand our deep connection. We haven't learned the unfortunate cultural rules about separation. And so I think we can all do that in some ways. I'm often, by the way, I do this for a living. I've experienced a lot of grief and I'm still sorting through my junk drawer all the time. So I don't think we're ever done. That's just, you know, we're Marie Kondoing our our grief police for the rest of our lives. And I love that invitation to nurture or sort of look in at that inner wisdom that we have you know, and to honor that. Because I think we all do have inner wisdom about how to navigate grief, but it's sort of layered and cluttered with all these cultural beliefs and practices, not just around grief, but larger cultural beliefs, which I'm sure we'll dive into today. Things like capitalism and other systems that sort of interrupt our true inner knowing and our true inner connection. Mm-hmm. Well, and even the gendered role of women in general being considered, you know, too emotional or more emotional. And then as a child, people would always say like, oh, you're highly emotional. 
rather than how wonderful you're so connected. You're keenly or, sensitive yeah, to the world. Yeah, exactly. And so then you learn, or, or I did, you know, I started to assume that being keenly sensitive or connected was a bad thing and that I should try to give myself distance. And so then we, we try to perform things that, and so it's even sorting through that is that it was actually a really wonderful thing to have been a child who was so deeply connected and how I wish I could get back to that, you know? And, and so, yeah, so many things to unpack around that. <laughs> yes. That's the journey I think we're all on. Well, maybe we'll begin this exploration of ecological grief, of climate grief, which I know we're going to peel back because it has so many layers. But when you're speaking with folks who maybe are just some of my listeners who might just be sort of thinking about this term for the first time, how do you begin to define or explain what that means, what climate grief or ecological grief is? So ecological grief, and I always use ecological grief, even though, you know, climate grief is certainly a term that's out there. But I, I like the broader collectivity of being an ecology with things. So there's a real relationship that's there. So the ecological grief is this grief that we feel in response to the loss of something that isn't human. And so that can be an individual animal, it can be a habitat, it can be a species, and it can be sort of a whole ecosystem. And for some people, it's an acute grief that happens when you, you know, say there's a flood or a hurricane or a wildfire and, and things are acutely lost. For other people, it's slower, it's, it's cumulative, it's chronic, you know, things that are like long-term drought. Where I live, sea ice loss over decades, you know, there's these kind of day-to-day -day losses and this kind of, you know, grief without end. And then sometimes there's these really acute moments. So it's actually a really complex form of recognizing our relationship to the environment and all the ways in which we're connected to other non-human beings. And then how our connections then predispose us to forms of grief if we let it. And I think that this idea, people always ask me, is ecological grief new? And it, it's not, you know, it's certainly not new. I mean, for thousands of years, people have been deeply connected to the environment and have grieved at loss. But I think what's new now is the need for terms that help us define the new era that we're facing. You know, we are in such a large scale era of loss and damage. We're seeing species disappear, ecosystems being adjusted or altered and destroyed. We're seeing projections that are terrifying for the future. So it's finding new terms to allow us to collectively express very old ideas and understandings. Yeah. Oh, again, so much to unpack or unravel there. I appreciate your reminder that this is really ancient. In fact, it might be that there were times in which, you know, pre-modernity that we were all much more aware and deeply connected to our interconnectedness, you know, in the ecologies. I also appreciate the fact that this move to name and label and speak about ecological grief in your work and so many other folks who are doing this work is important because as I always say, kind of from my narrative roots, I think when we don't have a name for something that we feel very viscerally to be true, it's hard to, well, two things, I think. It's hard to reckon or make meaning or process that experience because we are storying creatures. You know, that's my grief metaphor is really around the loss of our story. But I also think to your point, we feel isolated generally when we grieve. And so if we don't have a name for it or can find a way to carry that bridge between us and somebody else who might also be feeling that thing, just by having a shared collective term that we can use, I think is so beautifully powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That collective need to define where we are right now is something I hear from so many people when they hear the term for the first time. They're like, I feel that. I didn't know there was enough people who felt it that there was a term. And instantly, like Judith Butler talks about grief as having a we-creating capacity. And I find that when terms that people feel resonate, that validates where they are and kind of elevates their individual experience to the collective, it gives that we creating like immediately you're like, oh, I am now not alone. I'm in a we relationship. Other people feel this. This is reasonable. This is normal. And we should be talking about this more. And that's the importance of the term. And it's not to teach us something that we don't already know. It's to unite us together and give us the shared language to deal with the rapidly changing climate crisis that we're in right now. Yeah, that shared language is so incredibly important for us. A, of course, to take actions, but B, and maybe more importantly, to do the very thing that ecological grief is putting us at risk of, which is coming together and being collective in our 
sorrow, and then hopefully maybe also in our actions, which we're definitely going to talk about as we go on today. I've heard in this term solastalgia, right? So that's coined by maybe a fellow scientist. I'm not sure. Do you feel like that term, or explain it to our listeners maybe, but also how do you feel like that term does or doesn't help accurately capture the experience of ecological grief? Yeah, so solastalgia is a wonderful term. Glenn Albrecht, who's a philosopher from Australia and somebody that I really, really value and, and have worked a little bit with him and really look up to his work, is a term. So Glenn's been creating a whole new lexicon that he calls Earth Emotions and ways to describe times that we're in and bring back lost wisdom and to bring people together around a new terminology. And solastalgia is one of the, the pieces that he's put out. And it's a homesickness while still at home. It's kind of the most simple way to put it in such a complex concept. And the way that I came across this term was for a number of years, I had been working in Northern Labrador with Inuit who are at the front lines of climate change. And so many people were talking about how they've lived there for you know their whole lives, their parents, their grandparents, multi-generations. It's been stable weather, stable climate. You know, they're people of the sea ice. They know what's coming. And then all of a sudden in the last decade, the changes have been so unusual. They can't read the weather patterns. They don't know what's happening with the animals. Plants and berries are changing. You know, just whole ways of lives are changing. And they said, you know, are, are other people experiencing this? So I went out and I, I started looking what's out there, what's in the literature. And Glenn's wonderful work popped up. And solastalgia and the homesickness while still at home just seemed to really resonate. So I took that back up to the communities that I was working with and said, look, what do you think? This came out of, of work in Australia. And people said, yes, that's exactly what I'm feeling. Like I'm in home, but the changes around me are so different that I feel homesick for a home I'm still in and homesick for an environment that you're still living in, but it's so different. It doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't feel recognizable. It doesn't feel like home. And then I, a number of elders talked about and, and said, you know, in addition to the solastalgia, they had gone through forced relocation, whether it was for residential schools or governments, forcibly relocating people from one community to another. And they talked about that feeling when they were younger of being ripped from their familiar homeland and put in a new environment and how disorienting it was and how alienating a new landscape was. But then over time, it became home. But then now the climate's changed so much that it was creating a sense of homesickness for their current home and their previous home because it was bringing up these past traumatic feelings of disorientation and dislocation. And so I think that term, this idea that we can still be in place, but place isn't recognizable and we don't feel comfort there anymore. And it's something that resonates globally. And certainly you can see the ways in which this term has been picked up all over the world. And it really shows that people are resonating with this idea on a very, very deep and visceral level. Yeah. In just a minute, Ashley explores the ambiguous grief and loss that is central to ecological grief. And she invites us to honor the complexity and validity of it all. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Ashley Consolo. Don't forget, if you want to keep up with the latest on the show, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. But if you want some behind the scenes news, the latest on my work with individuals and companies, the scoop on the book I'm writing, same name as the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and so much more, visit www.lisakiefauver.com. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. Sign up for the not so regular newsletter because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. Thank you for sharing that with me. And I definitely want to hear more about your work with that community in particular. As you were talking, I was thinking about this term ambiguous loss that Pauline Boss coined so many years ago, working with Vietnam vets, both about when someone's physically present, but sort of cognitively or emotionally distant or the reverse where they're physically distant, but they're still maybe alive and in our hearts. And as you were talking, I was thinking about that experience of being home, being in on your land but not recognizing it to be 
what it's been in your lifetime, in your ancestors' lifetime, and the sort of fog and confusion and ambiguity, thus the term, that that can create. And I think for so many of my listeners who've had lots of different kinds of losses from, you know, Alzheimer's or addiction, or my husband, as an example, was not himself for the year before he died, misdiagnosed, turned into a totally different person, turned out to be a brain cancer, brain tumor. But I remember being in home and seeing him and feeling that homesickness in a way, because what I was looking at, what I was experiencing, even in my own home with this person who I'd known and loved, was not what I knew to be. So I don't think it just applies to this ecological grief. I really see this thread that carries all the way through to sort of death loss or other kinds of losses beyond ecological. Yeah. Yeah. And I think ecological grief is so tied up in ambiguous grief. And it's that ambiguity that makes people question whether they're feeling the grief in the first place. Or like, should they, I've had so many people, yeah, exactly. Why Mm -hmm. do I feel this way? Or should I feel this way? Or, or I haven't lost anything in quotations, but people have lost things. And even if it's a cumulative piece or a slower or a chronic or, you know, and then people start to question themselves, like in this ambiguity, do I even deserve to grieve? Or why do I feel this way? Or what's wrong with me? Or all of these kind of questions that kick in when really we should be looking at the complexities that all grief offers us and that there's there's incredible teachings in all forms of grief, but it's like somehow we've told ourselves that only certain types of grief matter and other types we just have to figure out like why we're the problem and make it a personal failing rather than something to talk about and, and realize is, is again a very reasonable, natural response to what we're experiencing. Yeah. Oh, again, so many little jewels of wisdom there. I think we do have this compulsion almost, I would say, to sort of rank order and sort of prioritize our grief. Both we do that among one another, but we often most damagingly do it to ourselves, right? So we sort of feel that we have to have permission. And then as a result, we end up locating and pathologizing, you know, often very normal responses to loss. I use this metaphor around grief, which is really around story. And I think when we think about some of these ambiguous losses, including the losses that many populations, I mean, we're all facing, frankly, ecological loss. But I think that the grief people closest to lands are experiencing is really the loss of this story that we are storing creatures, right? And for generations, we've understood ourselves in our environment and in our lives. And when all the predictabilities and the stories we have about who we are and how we walk in the world get torn apart by the tumult of the changing landscapes of our lives, our experience of grief is our loss to that sort of known story. And then we're trying to sort of find our way back by rebuilding a story or finding new meaning. So I think it applies even in this landscape. And I wonder, as you've been working with or researching, collaborating, connecting with different populations, the Inuit populations in particular, how have you heard them make meaning around identity, around this intergenerational storytelling about their connection to the land and how they're making meaning of the ecological grief that they're facing. Yeah, the piece that I'm going to share is one of the most profound things I've heard someone say about climate change and ecological grief. So back in 2013, I was working with uh, the five, there's five Inuit communities in a place called Nunatsiavut, which is an Inuit land claim settlement region of Labrador in northern Canada. And I was working with all five communities because they wanted to make a documentary about the ways in which climate change was impacting their connections to land and the mental health and the grief that came from it. And I should preface this with, I'm not a documentary filmmaker, but, you know, this was a community request. I had no experience whatsoever. So we said, well, let's Google how to make a documentary film. And away we went. So it's a really gritty, personal, you know, certainly not sleekly produced film. But what it stands is a testimony for what people are experiencing. And it's called Lament for the Land. And it was really set up to show people's connection and then what it meant. And at the end of the film, one of the leaders from Nain, his name's Tony Anderson, he says, you know, Inuit are people of the sea ice. And if there's no more sea ice, how do we be people of the sea ice? And if you really stop to think about the profoundness that for thousands of years, Inuit have been people of the sea ice, And generation after generation, that is your identity, your connection, your foundation, who you are, how you grow, where you connect with family, how you travel. It's it's everything about who you are. And 
suddenly within a generation coming, it's very likely that Labrador will be ice-free. And so how do you make sense of that? And so the profoundness of that, that we are this and now that's gone. And so how do we be that, you know, and that loss, like that ontological, that existential, the epistemological, the identity, everything, everything that is tied into that one statement, I think really summarizes where so many people in this world are, you know, people who have been so deeply connected for generations and particularly indigenous peoples, but also, you know, farmers, fishers, people who have generationally been connected to a place and rely on that place for all aspects of health and well-being and livelihoods and culture. And then suddenly it's taken away or it's impacted. And within a generation's lifetime, so from grandparent to parent to grandchild, you lose that. Like, how do you make sense of that? And how are the rest of us okay with that loss? And how are the rest of us okay that this is happening to people and people are losing thousands of years of connection and identity and knowledge and everything that comes with that? It's, it's world losing. And where are the accountability for others and how, when you're going through it, do you even make sense of that loss? And how do you adapt and how do you become something new when you thought you were always going to be something else? And so it's that same thing when grief hits us. Like, as you say, it's a sneaky bitch and uh, boom, it hits us. But then this is, you know, this is another form of people having to reconceptualize who they are in the world and what it means for themselves and their families and their children and their grandchildren. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. When you read those words, I had read that before, but when you read those words out loud, his words, Tony's words, I I felt that deeply. And I, I imagine our listeners did too, both for his lived experience, the lived experience of that community, but that ontological crisis, I think is we all experience in some shape or form, whatever the grief that we're facing. And so you don't have to have experienced that particular loss. You don't have to be part of that community to understand in your full humanity and sort of show up and sort of hold space for their humanity in that existential crisis that they're facing. So I wonder, speaking of sort of showing up in your full humanity, one of the things that I'm interested in as I continue to nerd out and dig deeper into books and film and literature around ecological grief is the ways in which the scientific community sort of writ large. I know there's lots of people coming from different angles or different studies and background, but how, I mean, there's sort of a layered question. First is how you're showing up in the face of all of these experiences, like the one you just described to do study, to research, to walk alongside with, right? To help their scientists who are thinking about solutions sort of at a more practical level. But scientifically speaking, I'm guessing just like the fields, even in the helping profession, we're strongly encouraged to lock up our humanity in some way so that we can show up in our professional capacities, which you might notice a little judgment and sarcasm in my voice right now. And I do think there are spaces and places for that. We do have to think about, right, the scientific impact and the relational impact that we have when we're working with somebody. But given that the scientific community from all these different angles are showing up, presumably because they care, they want to study, they want to understand, they want to think about impact and solutions, but are generally speaking, encouraged to do that kind of buttoned up, right? And sort of shutting down, turning off the lever of our humanity. What is the reaction sort of, you can share from your own personal experience, but also from the larger scientific community. I don't understand how we can there's no way to adequately show up and bear witness to all of this loss and not be there in our full humanity. What's been your experience and what are you seeing among the scientific community sort of more broadly around that? Yeah, this is something, well, I've certainly had some deep experiences with that that I'm happy to share. And I think we're seeing, like, if you go into fields of ecology or biology or working with species or working with people or looking at land or geography, you go in because you love it. And like, I have never met, you know, an ecologist or biologist who doesn't love what they do and they love the environment. Someone's studying a species, they love that species. That's why they do it. And when you are studying a species that is declining or disappearing or losing, it does impact people. And 
I've had so many discussions with, you know, friends and colleagues and, you know, people that I just met who say, like, I can't talk about the grief I feel in my science. And I carry this burden every day. But if I share my emotions, then people will think I'm not objective. And I think this is a huge problem in science in general, because like we do need to know that people who are studying, well, there's actually some wonderful researchers in the UK who came forward. They study the coral reefs and the Great Barrier Reef. And they call it reef grief and that they have been studying it for decades. And then suddenly they went and it was like a mass die off bleach and just the devastation that they felt that, you know, you go because you love it and you go because you care. And then suddenly it's gone and you witness the death. Like, how can you not be emotionally affected? And so I think this is something that people are grappling with so much because people are bearing witness day in and day out to loss and yet don't have the mechanism to talk about it. So you publish papers, but you're not publishing about loss and you give presentations, but you're not talking about loss. And that is a hard place to be. And I have certainly, my experience with my research was a really kind of complex one. So when I first started working there, I was working with a team of Inuit researchers and we were doing long sort of qualitative interviews with people in community. So we interviewed over 85 people in a community of 300. And there was a particular pivotal moment. And, and the, the original research study the community wanted answered was how does climate change impact health writ large? So physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And I don't think anyone at that time, because this was about 13 years ago, realized that mental health was going to be the number one thing on that spectrum. So it was a beautiful March day back in 2009. And I was sitting in the living room of an elder who was helping with the study. And, you know, we were answering and talking and she was talking about all the questions and it was a lot about climate impacts and what are you seeing and documenting? What are the changes? And, you know, and she was answering, she had tremendous lifelong knowledge. And I remember sort of, there's this moment where I just suddenly said, well, how do those changes make you feel? And she paused for a really long time and then she just started to cry. And she said, no one has ever asked me that before. Like, this is not, like, she was so good at documenting and we were so good at, like, at that point, science was all about documenting. What are people seeing? But no one was ever saying, what are people feeling? And that became a really transformative moment for the project, for me, for her. And we just started talking about the feelings. And then that led to countless conversations with people in the community around how do you feel? Yes, you've seen all these changes, but what are they actually doing and what do they mean? And so that became my doctoral work. And I didn't appreciate at the time what would happen when you're immersed in other people's grief all the time. And I wasn't, you know, a trained social worker like you are. I didn't have the skill set. So suddenly, not only was I in the community and talking to people who were experiencing tremendous layers of grief and emotion, and then I was listening to transcripts and then I was, or audio, and then I was reading the transcripts and then I was thinking about it nonstop and I was so immersed in it and I was so emotional and so full of my own grief, you know, grief from bearing witness, grief from my own climate grief, grief from seeing and, and witnessing changes. And then I thought I didn't deserve to feel grief. So I smothered my grief and I created in my head this kind of like hierarchy of pain where, well, my pain and grief doesn't matter because I'm not living at the front lines. This is not my culture. This is, you know, I haven't gone through the generational loss. And so I just sort of smothered it in a really unhealthy way. And I'm someone whose emotions are very embodied. And if I don't deal with them, then like bad things happen to me. And so, so this is great. So I'm in my PhD. I'm in the writing stage. You know, I've spent months and months and years working with community and studying and grief. And all of a sudden I develop a weird nerve pinch thing in my neck where I can no longer type. So neither of my hands <laughs> would work and my forearms were, and I had like, I saw all these specialists and nobody could figure out what in the heck was going on. And so there's, you know, suddenly I'm stopped from doing what I needed to do. And it wasn't until I talked to an elder that I had been working with and started to say like, you know, I'm, I'm in all this pain and I can't do it. And she said, well, what aren't you letting go? Like, what aren't you acknowledging in your life? Like, what are you emotionally holding on to? And so bit by bit, I started to say, well, I, I don't feel that my pain should matter. And she's like, but everybody's pain matters. And so we talked through it and that began the process of me. It was about a six week process of just a complete and utter 
bereavement of all the things that I had smothered for the last couple of years and probably all the things I had smothered for my life around ecological based grief just came out. And then after that, I was miraculously cured. I could type. All the pinched nerves went away. And it was a complete catharsis of a, of a physical and a mental thing. And that came out. So, you know, all of that went away. And then I was able to go back and I was able to then deal with my own grief and other people's grief. And I still struggle. Like I still find myself thinking my pain doesn't matter as much or my story doesn't matter as much or, you know, people are at the front lines. And yes, in many cases that is true, but it doesn't mean that I don't have to do my own grief work to make sure that I stay healthy. And so that's the place that I think myself, I still grapple with, but I also think many scientists are grappling with where they, does their grief matter? And who can they talk to about it? And where can they go? And I think we're so maladaptive as a society. And I'm going to blame sort of modern Western, European, Canadian, yep. North American society. Yep. We're not good with grief, as you know. Like we're, we're really not good bad. with any. We're not good with any emotion no. that isn't happy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we run away from it. We hide from it. We smother mm-hmm. it. We, we drug it. We drink it. it. We oh, eat yeah. it. Maladaptive. Yeah. Out the mm-hmm. end. We don't want to talk about it. We run away. And so then I think when you. You add those like lack of skills and then you add in scientific objectivity in quotations and you add in academic objectivity and culture that the idea that you should be sad about your research or your research should be emotionally distraught. People just don't know what to deal with that. But it is like how like we study what we love and we study what we're connected to. And that's the other side of grief. Like we only grieve because we love something. So if we're feeling these emotions, it's because we love. And at the base of grief is this nourishing love that we just cut off because we cut off grief. And I think that it's something we're all trying to grapple with in academia and science. And where's the boundaries that you can talk about those things? And if you don't feel you can talk publicly, you have to be able to talk privately so that you don't smother as I did for many years. And I think many of us are. And I think in general, whether you're a scientist or not, I think we're smothering a lot of ecological fear and grief, whether we know it or not. Absolutely. When we come back, I asked Ashley to shine a light on what progress, if any, she sees in the scientific and academic communities to recognize, honor, and even support the very real and deep grief so many are experiencing now more than ever. You're listening to Grief as a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Ashley Consolo. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. So much wisdom there, and I appreciate you sharing and being vulnerable with your own experience of coming to grips with your own ecological grief, particularly, you know, with this title and this role as scientist and just the wisdom that the elders shared with you about the embodiment of our grief, which I think is one of the many layers of grief. I mean, we don't talk about most things about grief, but that's definitely one place that we don't. You know, that grief thief thing you're talking about, right? That comparing that when we sort of thieve ourselves from our own grief, I think has some good, you know, we like to think of it as good intentions, right? That we don't want to hog the spotlight or that we want to elevate or honor somebody else's pain. But I think it's a complete, we can't have compassion for others if we don't have compassion for ourselves. Earlier this season, I had Dr. Kristen Neff on to talk about that work of self-compassion and compassion. And I think as we started, in order to see people in their full humanity and their full richness of their stories and their lives, and not just their humanity, but the interconnectedness, right, of human to land, we have to also be in touch with those things. So we have to be able to process or work through. I Love that you use that phrase. I use it all the time. We all have to do our own grief work. I mean, just period. If you're a parent, you need to do your own grief work as you parent a child. If you're a scientist, you have to do it. If you're a doctor, I've had the privilege of going into some medical schools recently and doing some training with physicians who, again, that world is like, you don't matter. It's the patient matters. But we all have to do our own grief work. I do this for a living. I do my own grief work both for the grief, as you pointed out, that you experienced from the losses that you're directly witnessing, your own, in this case, ecological grief, but also we are withstanding when we bear witness to other people's grief and loss, we can't do that without our humanity and without it having an impact on our own grief experiences and bringing a new lens to our own pain. So I think that invitation 
to do that, which is a challenge. I mean, I, I work with leaders too. Like this is not the culture of leaders. This is not the culture of medicine. This is not the culture of science academia. And I'm saying this writ large. I know there's amazing institutions who are doing this great work. So if you're one of them listening, kudos to you. But I would say generally speaking, we're not. So what are you seeing when you talk with fellow scientists about this call for maybe compassion and grief support or other among the scientific community. Do you see that? Are we making any progress there? What do you see happening in the sort of broader community that might invite people to start doing some grief work? I do see some progress. And I think part of it is because we're being forced into it. You know, that there's only so much you can hold in. And and I'm certainly an example of that. Like there was only so much that I could hold in because I mistakenly thought that by ignoring my grief, that that was the best course of action. So that if I ignored my grief, that meant I was honoring someone else's. And it wasn't until having someone who is much, much wiser than I was to explain that ignoring my grief is actually dishonoring others because it means I can't be my full self with others. And I had never looked at it that way, that actually doing our own work is a gift and it's a form of honoring and it's a form of respect because it means we can show up for others and we can bear witness in a more open and relational thing. Like I was closed off. I was damaged. Even though I thought I was there in my full self, I wasn't. And so myself not being able to function meant that I couldn't honor and show up. And so I think that that's starting to be a conversation because people are being forced into it because it's becoming so hard and it's so difficult to work in environmental fields and to work in climate change right now because it is like you go to meetings, you look at the science. I mean, the, the intergovernmental panel on climate change reports are coming out and they're devastating. You know, COP26 just finished. There's devastation. Like we're surrounded by it all the time. It is a time of loss and damage. And it's a time then if we understand to be in loss and damage, then we understand we have to do the work. We have to be accountable to figure out how we're actually going to in our hearts and our minds and our bodies that we're going to figure out how to move forward. And that's a call to scientists too. There's a wonderful website called Is This How You Feel? And it's climate scientists. And then it it became sort of ecologists and biologists, people writing in about how they actually feel about their work. And, you know, it was started. And I don't think anyone anticipated the outpouring that this would bring. You know, it's just been inundated. And it's it's a really beautifully done because people handwrite how they feel. And then there's a photograph of it on the website. So you actually see the individual coming through. And yeah, and when you read through it, you realize the humanity that is behind science and has always been behind science. But that more and more people are sharing as these, you know, reef grief scientists in the UK, like that are coming out and saying this was utterly devastating. You know, scientifically, it was devastating. But personally, I feel a loss. I don't know how to begin to describe. And I think that that's a conversation we actually need to have more and more. And I'm also seeing more and more undergraduate students because, I mean, youth right now are so mobilized with the climate emergency and doing so much advocacy. But I'm actually seeing in the undergrad, particularly in North America, students wanting to talk about this. Like if they choose to study environmental things or to say that this is actually really hard, like I'm making a hard choice to study something that is going to be emotionally difficult. So how are we going to talk about this in the classroom and what sort of supports are available? And I think that younger generation is coming to this so much sooner than I did myself. You know, they're demanding it and looking for ways and reaching out. And I get a lot of youth reaching out to say, what sort of resources do you know about that could support undergraduate students? And how do I bring this to my professors? And how do we talk about this? And so I think there is a movement where people are recognizing more and more that if you're going to study something that's changing or disappearing or moving, then there is some grief work that needs to be done. And done ongoing. I mean, that's the thing. This grief work is not something, you know, we love everything with the top 10 list or, you know, check it off and be done. But to me, grief work is part of the work of living. This is part of the practice that we have to be a part of. So I love, I love that little nugget of hope that we're seeing that. Um, I teach a loss and grief class at Texas, as I said, University of Texas. And this is one of the topics we've been talking about. And I've been so surprised. I mean, these, Students are coming from all disciplines, not just social workers, and they are deeply curious about expanding their own understanding of grief, what their responsibility to do their own grief work is, and how that might shape how they show up in the world, whatever their chosen profession is. 
I deeply resonated with that reef grief term. My listeners probably know, I'm sure I've shared before, I've been a scuba diver since I was 12, 13 years old and have a life motto I learned in my first scuba diving trip that has served me as I've navigated some many painful experiences of my life. And I've definitely been diving in places in recent years. I did have the honor of living in Australia for a short time undergrad, but in recent years, definitely diving across places that were bleached you know, the damage and cried in my scuba mask underwater, you know, and just really felt that deep grief. I think after I watched Chasing Coral, I didn't speak to anybody for three days. I was so deeply devastated, both by my own connection to the water and to the ocean, because it's been a really important place in my life. But as you said, just even watching the scientists and their grief and their devastation, I really had to sort of do some self-care and nurturing there. Yeah. But I'm heartened to know that between the students and even the scientific communities with platforms like the one you just shared, that we're starting to see a recognition to allow and to name and to make space for grief isn't the same as giving up. You know, I think sometimes we hold those binaries. It's like, if I grieve, then somehow I'm not fighting the good fight. And I think we can only keep fighting the good fight if we allow ourselves to grieve. Otherwise, we burn out, right? Absolutely. And that I find grief is what brings people together and mobilizes people so people can fight together and support each other together. And this this idea that grief is a weakness is such a flawed cultural concept. And it's embedded in science. It's, I can say that as an academic, you know, this idea that if you have emotions, then, then you're weak or it's a weakness of you. And that is so flawed. Like grief is a strength. And if you can walk through grief and deal with grief and mobilize grief and talk about it like that, that takes strength and that takes commitment and it takes honoring and it brings people together. And I think there's so much that we can learn from that. And we need to flip this idea that grief is weakness when it actually grief work is a huge form of strength. And it's hard. I mean, everyone I'm sure listening has gone through grief and it is hard. And if we don't deal with it, like it just But it doesn't go happen. anywhere. No. That's the thing. It doesn't go anywhere as much as we like to think about that. You know, as we start our way towards closing this conversation, which I feel grief about, this might be the first of many conversations we have, but I want to move towards a little bit kind of, I know you've written and think a little bit about hope and resilience, which not everybody likes to trade in those terms. But before we move there, I wondered whether you've been a part of or witnessed any practices among the scientific or indigenous communities that you work with around sort of memorials or monuments or how, you know, those external expressions of grief. I'm thinking about an article I read. I should have pulled it out before we had our conversation today. I think it's been a couple of years now. Some scientists, I think both in the U.S. and in Iceland, maybe put up a memorial to a glacier that was basically disappearing or had disappeared with a kind of notation that, you know, we miss you and only time will tell whether we did the right thing by this planet. That example in particular or others, have you seen monuments or memorials or ways in which people are trying to honor their ecological grief? Yeah, and I always see it in art. And it's always the artists that show the emotional zeitgeist of a time before the rest of us catch up. <laughs> so, exactly, like exactly. I, uh, there's so many. There's um, a neat project called the Memo Project, and it's a monument to all the species that have been lost to date with lots of blanks for species that are coming. And then every year on Earth Day, they ring a bell the number of times of the species lost. And so there's things like that. And I think what people are really starting to look for are ways to ritualize non-human loss. Because we have so many rituals for humans and, and all different cultures have all different ways, but there's always a way to mark that passing and that loss. Which is an important component of the grief work. It's not the only thing, but it's incredibly powerfully important. Absolutely. And those rituals do carry healing weight. And so I'm seeing, you know, people trying to find how do you ritualize and what does it mean to honor and to remember and to come together? And, you know, I've seen people hold memorial services for ecosystems that have gone or after wildfires, going back to and kind of honoring the land. That Iceland glacier is a wonderful experience, the, the memo piece. Like there's there's a lot of things that people I think are are trying to do as part of the honoring 
of what's lost. And I think that there's a lot for us to learn there and to figure out like what does it mean? And also, how do you honor something that's still in process of disappearing? So how do you ritualize ongoing loss or like this grief without end, like where you're seeing this constantly changing ecosystem that you're grieving every day, but there's no break point, you know, there's, there's no that end. ambiguity again. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you, yeah. how do you memorialize that and ritualize that? Yeah, that's beautiful. You're so right about artists, whether it's poets or philosophers or dancers or, you know, whatever medium, they're always ahead of us to really help us make visible the things that we're experiencing before we're ready to come to terms with it. So when you think about, my listeners will know, I'm not all about like, I hate toxic positivity and I'm not all about shiny, happy endings, right? I think I'm very comfortable, as one of my guests said, sitting in the suck. But I still wonder when you think about not necessarily, you know, the future of our climate or the ecological systems that we inhabit, but more, is there places or spaces, you touched maybe a little bit on it, the younger generation, but are there places of hope or resilience in academia, in the scientific community, in the Inuit communities that you work with? Can you share maybe one or two signs of kind of hope or resilience that you see happening when we're thinking about this notion of ecological grief. I have a funny relationship with hope too. Yeah, I feel torn about it. Yeah, I do as well. And I, so I like to think about different types of hope. And the hope that I like to focus on is like the really gritty earned hope, hope yeah. that people work damn hard for because they did the grief work. They've gone through the experiences. They're at the front lines. They're grappling with it. And yet they're still moving forward. And so that, and maybe hope's not the right word. Because, I know it's not the right word, maybe yeah, resilience or yeah, commitment. It's, it's people who have done the work and are still moving forward. And I think where I find this gritty earned hope is also when we recognize that what's on the other side of grief is love and we somehow find a way to tap into love and to honor past love, current love, future love. And that can be for people, that can be for ecosystems, non-human bodies. And that that is where I find, you know, maybe we need a new lexicon around hope because hope is so tied to, as you said, toxic positivity and Pollyannaism. And, but there is something and there's something there. And I find that people that I really admire or resonate with are people who have done that. They've earned it and they're still going forward. And so I think that's where we can come together. And I, you know, maybe it is resilience, but then I have a funny relationship with resilience. I do too. <laughs> because... Sometimes, well, I'll give an example in the North is, so Inuit have been at the front lines of climate change for decades and things that people are planning that their regions will experience in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, Inuit have already been experiencing. And when we talk about like a 1.5 degree temperature change on average in the globe is what we're trying to hold to, you know, in many parts of the North, it's over three degrees so far where I live, some of the projections are looking at anywhere from a seven degree average change to an 11 degree average change. That's devastating. So what I have found is people mobilize the term resilience and they'll say, well, look at the Inuit. They're so resilient. They've gone through so much. Good for them. Rather than As an excuse to not take excuse. action. Exactly. And, and instead of saying, look what we've done and look at the structures that have been created that have caused this pain in the first place, they'll congratulate them for still moving through the pain. Yeah. And so resilience can actually be a tool that people in privilege mobilize to justify not making change on their own end and then to congratulate people for being strong. In the circumstances that we caused that we them to need the to be place. strong. In exactly. The and we see this in so many situations. So again, it's almost like in the same way that we need solastalgia or ecological grief or these new terms, it's almost like we need something new that describes hope and resilience, but not in the negative connotations of those words or the Pollyannaism of them, but something else that shows people moving forward who have done this work and are still doing really extraordinary things. Yeah, I'm really drawn to what you said. I think, and I don't know what the word is, maybe we're going to ponder on this and we'll come up with it. Maybe the listeners will drop us a note. But I think there's some connection there. And I've been thinking about this as I've faced my own various experiences of pain over the course of my 50 years now on this earth. And of course, born witness to so many others is I think there's something with that grittiness of the work of it combined with the love. I think that notion of love in its most expansive form and awe. I think there's something in those three words that help us 
be present to the pain, to the devastation, to the loss, and using that presence to be made aware of our deeper connection to sort of love and wonder and awe. And I don't know, that's not a word. We haven't come up with a term yet, but that's where I see the people that I work with most in the world who face their pain, continue to face their pain, do their grief work. They have a vibrancy about the world. It's not the Pollyannish hope, but they have a an engagement. I always say I, I see the world with delight and wonder much more than I did, you know, in my 20s, let's say, or in my 30s because of what I've been through. So that might be the next lexicon that we're adding to our vocabulary, something at that enriched, gritty kind of hope. And I love that you brought in awe because that's something I try to find awe in every day. Even if I do not want to find the awe in every day, I try to force myself because, and it's one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given was no matter what you're going through, there is awe in the journey and there is awe in pain. Like there is awe in grief and there is awe in the environment. And so I love that you brought that in because that's something too, where you you truly try to tap into something beyond yourself to see that, as you said, expansive form of love. Yeah. Well, and I think it's practice. That's something that takes intention and mindfulness and practice because it's not a muscle. I think we develop again. It's kind of actually a must like you returning to where we began today. When we're children, we have awe and reverence and it's sort of a muscle that atrophies as adultism kind of takes over our lives. And so I think for us, all of the adults listening to this conversation to maybe as an invitation for all of us to practice you know, taking a snapshot or to sort of connecting with awe in some way might be a way that we can accompany the pain and the grief work that we also have to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it highlights our relations with others, human and non-human, you know, and that that's a gift there as well. I love that. So my last question for you today, really, I try to ask this whenever I have incredible experts and professionals on the show like yourself, which is, is there some next frontier? Is there some It could be a sustained meditation you've been having all along, or is there some next frontier that you're deeply curious about in your professional work, mostly, that you're thinking about as you think about this topic of ecological grief? What's on your mind right now? What's next? I think what's next for me is still, we know so little about the ways in which the era of loss and damage we're in now is affecting people mentally and emotionally. And I think we're only just tapping into the widespread nature of what this actually means. And so what occupies a lot of my thoughts is how do we grapple with the loss that's coming? How do we account for and take accountability for the loss? And how are we responsible? And how will we make change? And then simultaneously, how do we not end up curled up in the fetal position in bed, unable to do it? Because if you really let the loss in uh, on the planetary scale, like if we're talking planetary grief, I don't know how we cope with that. And I don't know how we reckon with it. And I think that this, there are so many things that we need to answer in the world from a scientific perspective around climate change and everything that's happening. But one of the things we're not answering and giving appropriate weight in my experience is the emotional impacts that this is going to have. And we are underskilled as a species to deal with it. Like we're just, we're just radically underskilled. And I really worry about what that means down the road because as you and the listeners are well aware, if we don't deal with this stuff, it's going to come out in really maladaptive ways. And those maladaptive ways are going to come in at times where we're also experiencing incredible climate trauma and, you know, mass disasters and migrations and human loss and ecosystems loss. And then we're also going to be underskilled and underprepared. And and so that's what occupies me is the simultaneous climate crisis and the, the human crisis at the same time, because we're not talking about it or thinking about it or giving it the weight of what it can actually mean within this broader experience that we're having as a species on this world. Yeah. And I think so much that the more we can give attention to that, I think there's the misnomer that that will just make us feel more disempowered or more feel bad. But I think as we started the conversation today, it's only when we give acknowledgement and affirmation and voice to the things that we're already feeling and experiencing that that can actually lighten the burden 
that we feel like we're carrying as individuals. So I love that that's this sustained meditation that you're on. And I hope our paths will continue to cross because that's definitely something that is on my mind as well. Ashley, I can't believe the conversation is coming to a close, but it has been an absolute honor. I've learned so much from you, from your wisdom, from your insight, your vulnerability and sharing your own experiences. Thank you so much for joining me on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I feel deeply honored to have this conversation. And I feel from talking with you that my own grief journey is more enriched and I'm taking away things that I think will, you know, assist me as I go forward, but also help me come to things with my fullest humanity possible. So I really thank you for that. Thank you. Oh, friends, I have to share. This conversation with Ashley lit me up from the inside while we were having it, and then again when I listened back to produce the show and bring it to you. As I said, I've been wanting to begin incorporating ecological grief into my work, and I think the wisdom, insights, vulnerability, and honesty Ashley brought today was absolutely brilliant. I hope you agree. This certainly won't be the last on this subject, but I'm grateful to have begun here. You can learn more about Ashley and her work by visiting www.ashleyconsolo.ca. I'll drop a link in the show notes for today's episode too. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show and that team over at StudioPod for helping me produce it. I also want to thank you, my listeners, for tuning in once again to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast today with my guest, Ashley Consolo. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. Mm-hmm.